I want to talk to you about getting right in a wrong world. Getting right in a wrong world. Romans is a theologically deep and powerful book, but it's really all about the good news. When Paul wrote the book of Romans and Well, in essence, Paul's telling us that before we understand the good news, we have to understand how bad the bad news is. How about it? I heard of a college girl that she wrote her father an email. And she told him, hey, Dad, I'm just writing you a note to let you know that, well, I met Joe while I was in, in school, and I've fallen in love. I'm going to marry him. I know he had a big drug problem. He just got out of jail. He doesn't really have a job right now, but he's looking for one. I'm going to drop out of school. He lives in Las Vegas. I'm going to move to Las Vegas with him. And by the way, I'm two months pregnant. Then she sent a follow-up email and said, I was just kidding, Dad, but I did get a D in algebra. (laughs) You see, it's sort of good news, bad news. And sometimes we, well, we really don't understand how good the good news is until we understand how bad the bad news is. Many of us have not really understood the gospel of Jesus Christ because we don't understand really how bad the bad news is. And Paul is talking to the Romans who live in a big city like Chicago who didn't really understand how bad the bad news is. And so he's trying to explain to them this is how bad it is. If you don't understand how bad it is, you're never going to try to grasp for a solution because you don't really think you have a big problem. Uh, Recently, we've all watched on TV as they've shown images of the East Coast hurricane. And I I saw one news report where they were interviewing one man on the second floor, and they were asking him if he was going to vacate his building or if he was going to stay And he was kind of joking, I've lived through a lot, I'll be fine, I just have a couple cans of tuna, I got some water, you know, I've been through a lot, just close my door and kick back and and enjoy my time, a little time off work. And then they found that same man afterwards and interviewed him. And there was a whole nother story because he didn't understand how bad the bad news was. Uh, He thought he had lived through several hurricanes, but you see, this hurricane was a lot worse than anything else he had experienced. And when they interviewed him the second time, well, he wasn't, he was asking for help this time. He was saying, you don't know how bad it is. We flooded, my lights are off, we're freezing cold. I took it lightly before. I really need help. You see, when help was offered to him the first time around, he didn't really need it because he didn't know how bad it was. But when he experienced how bad it was, then he said, I really, really need help. Spiritually, I believe it's the same way. And Paul is trying to argue with the Romans. He's trying to tell them how bad it really is in, other, in, in order that they can grasp the solution that God has given them. 
And so I've broken this passage down in just a couple simple points I want you to understand, getting right in a wrong world. I'm going to begin reading in verse 9 of Romans chapter 3. And my first point, there's really four points here. First of all, it's the problem of sin. Secondly, the failed solution. Thirdly, the only real solution. And lastly, the faith principle. And I'm going to go through this very quickly, so I want you to hang on. I want to talk to you about the problem of sin. That's the bad news. Now, when I say sin, most people in this congregation, if I were to ask you, if, if I were to ask you do you consider yourself a sinner? Most people, I doubt if initially, most people that I talk to that haven't really understood how bad the bad news is, would not label themselves a sinner. They would say, well, I sin, but I don't know if I'd call myself a sinner. It's like the person that drinks. I, I, I drink, and I know I drink on the weekends, and I know I drink alone, but I, would I call myself a drunk or an addict? I don't know if I'd call myself an addict. I've talked to guys who have tracks up and down their arms of shooting up, and I would say, so you're an addict. Well, pastor, I don't know if I'd call myself an addict. Well, do you get high every week? Yeah. Do you get high every day? Yeah. Can you live without it? Well, not very good. Would you call yourself an addict? Well, I don't know if I'd call myself an addict. <laughs> you see, some of us have a problem, but we're in denial about how big that problem is. Most of us know we sin, but most of us would not say that sin is a major problem in our life. Most of us would say, sure, everybody sins, everybody makes mistakes, but I don't know if I'd call myself a sinner. And this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. He says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? And he's talking about the bad news for other people, and he's saying, hey, are we any better than them? Not at all we have already made the charge that the Jews and the Gentiles are alike under sin. Paul was saying no matter if you were born a Jew and you had the law, or you were born a Gentile and never had scripture, we all have a problem and this problem of sin affects all of humanity. There's no one that is excluded from this problem. And then he begins to explain how bad this problem really is. In verse 10, he says, as it is written, there is none, there is no one righteous. No, not even one. Hold on. No one in the whole world? Well, that's what he says. No one leaves very little wiggle room. He's not saying there's some that are righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? To be righteous means that we measure up to God's standard, that we measure up to God's moral code. Uh, as revealed in scripture, that we measure up, God has a standard of passing or failing in our life, and that no one measures up to God's standard of passing the grade. He says, this is how bad this problem is in humanity. There is no one that's righteous. No, not even one. Think of the best person you know. Maybe it's your grandmother. By the time you met her, well, there was not a lot of sin she was committing because she was, you know, 75 years old, but you can remember her. She may not have been as good when she was 18, but some of you say, oh, my grandmother, she's practically a saint. 
Well, think of the best person you know. Paul says, no, she's not even her. She's not even making the passing grade before God. There's no one that makes the standard. No, not even one. There is no one who understands. Understands what? There's no one who understands how to be right with God fully. There's no one who understands the ways of God fully. No, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. You say, well, hold on, Pastor. I think there's a lot of people that seek after God. No, there's not, no one that on their own would seek after God. Do you realize that none of us here seek after God? It's God who seeks after us and awakens us. And then we, he, when he has awakened us, then we finally seek after him. Oh, let me say that again. See, some of you say, well, I found God. The truth of it is you didn't find God. God found you. And God called you. And God pulled you to himself. And then finally you woke up one day and realized, hey, there's a tugging, there's a pulling, and maybe I should follow the end of the rope at who's tugging and pulling after me. And it's God. You on your own and me on my own, I would never seek after God. In my own fallenness of sin, I would never seek after God. Left to myself, I would seek after myself, my own pleasure, my own egotism, just like you would seek. It's God who's sought after us. It's God who's awakened us. It's God who's pushed us and said, come on, get up, come on, I'm pursuing you. It's God who sought after us, first of all, even while we were yet deep in our darkness, God has loved us and sought after us. Sandra shared her story when she was in that closet, high and drunk, thinking that someone was chasing after her. I can guarantee you that it was the Holy Spirit meeting her in that closet when she was high, when she was drunk, when she was far from God, not even coming close to any church, not reading the Bible, not seeking after him, I believe it was God through his Holy Spirit that showed up in that dark closet while she was weeping and crying in that fetal position in that closet. And it's the Holy Spirit of God that loved Sandra even in the midst of her mess that God showed up there and said, Sandra, call unto me. I, I can reach you. I still love you. And something in Sandra awakened so that she in the closet starts calling unto God, but who do you think called first unto her? I can guarantee you it was God calling her first before she called unto God. He says in verse 12, all have turned away. They have become altogether worthless. The word worthless used here in the Greek is the word despoiled or to rot. He says they've all become rotten, spoiled. There is no one who does good, not even one, he says. In other words, what Paul is explaining is how bad the problem is. Some of us think that humanity is divided into several sections. The good people, the sort of good people, and the bad people. 
What Romans tells us is, no, there is no good people, sort of good people, and bad people. You think that the people locked up at 26 and Cal are in the bad people category, and the people that show up on Sunday morning at church services or at charity events fall into the category of the good people. But spiritually speaking, what Paul is telling us is that there is no good people. There are no good people on the face of this earth that on their own are good before God. The good that is in us, it's because God has called us that we all have a problem, a mega disease in our life. That disease is called sin. It's a spiritual disease that left to all of us will consume our lives. Then he says, he goes on to describe, their throats are open grave, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery marks their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And you say, well, pastor, how did we get into that place? You see, I believe that most of us Most of us don't really know how bad our disease is because most of us, well, we look at ourselves through the mirror of comparison and we compare ourselves with other people and we say, well, compared to that person, I'm pretty good. Compared to my neighbor, man, I'm a saint. Compared to my mother-in-law, oh, Lord, help me. I I think I'm almost an angel. But you see, the problem is you have a wrong comparison. Uh, this is a mirror. This is, women will recognize what this is. I asked my wife if I could borrow it. She hesitantly said I could. But there's two sides to this mirror. One side of this mirror is sort of, uh, sort of the normal view of yourself. And, you know, uh, you look at that normal view and say, yeah, not bad. You know, things are Okay. But then there's another side to this mirror, and it's the magnifying mirror. Ladies, how many of you know what I'm talking about? How many of you don't like to flip it over and see that magnifying area? Because then when you flip it over, it's like, whoa, really? I didn't know I had so many wrinkles around my eyes. Man, it looks like a forest of hairs in that nose there. I mean, you look at that magnifying glass and you're like, wow, man, my teeth are really yellow, aren't they? You, you start looking and you see all the flaws that are there. That at a distance you really don't see until you flip it over and you see the magnifying glass and you really start seeing. It's like what happened to me when, when, we, got, when we went from just regular t- television to HD. And I started saying, wow, I didn't, that newscaster looks old. I didn't realize... <laughs> how old they really were. And I've heard that newscasters hated when HD came out because it shows all the flaws. And you see, here's here's the thing. That's the way it is with the Word of God. We think we're okay until the Word of God is like that magnifying mirror in which the Word and the Holy Spirit start showing us that we have mega flaws 
that what we thought was okay is really not so okay. That there are major deficiencies and flaws in which we thought was almost perfect and pretty nice. The magnifying mirror of the Spirit shows us the depth of the blemishes and imperfections that we have upon our soul. And what what the Apostle Paul is telling us is that this is really bad. This issue of sin is really bad. It has to be dealt with. It cannot be ignored. If you look in the Bible, the definition of sin is transgression, evil, violation of a moral religious code. It, it defines sin as lack of conformity to God's character. Or sin is hopelessly incurable disease of the soul. Or sin is rebellion against God. Or sin is an op- the opposite of holiness of God and morality. Literally, the word sin means to miss the mark, the mark of God's standard. There's not a person here in this auditorium that can say, I am sinless. What is the history of our sin? Well, the history of our propensity to sin was established with Adam and Eve. You see, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. Who was that one man? It was Adam. God created Adam and Eve without sin. But when they chose, but he also created them with the free will to choose their destiny. Adam and Eve were born without sin. But they had the power to choose what they wanted to do. And at one time in history, they chose to sin, to go against God. And, the, and, and Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as one man, Adam, sin entered in the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Every single child that is born at Northwestern Hospital downtown, at Christ Hospital on 95th Street, every child that's born, no matter how cute they may look, they have a sin nature. That means they are born with the propensity to sin. Where was that passed down? That's been passed down from Adam, from generation to generation. Every generation after Adam has that sin disease, so to speak, that propensity to sin, that that brokenness of the soul that when we're old enough, we will go against God. We will follow a moral code that's contrary to God. We will do our own thing. We will disobey. We will break the laws of God. And so therefore... The sin nature inherited by Adam gives us the predisposition to sin. Now, hear me well. I want you to understand this clearly. Some people believe that babies have to be baptized and cleansed from the sin nature. But I want you to understand this. A sin nature is not what condemns you. It's not Adam's sin that condemns you. It's our own sin that condemns us. A baby doesn't have the ability to sin because they're too young to make choices. So don't ever worry about if a baby dies before they were baptized or whatever because they have no sin to condemn them. All right? It's very important to understand. It's not until we're older that we have the ability to sin. And it's our own sin that makes us unright before God. What is the result of our sin? All of us have sinned. We reach an age where we start sinning fairly young in life. Isaiah chapter 59 says, but your iniquities have have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will no longer hear. It is our personal sin 
that separates us from the holiness of God. You say, well, how much sin separates me? One sin does because God is a holy God. Genesis chapter four, verse seven says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must master it. Isaiah 53, verse six says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned his own way. And Jesus tells us in John chapter eight, verse 34, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The moment that you started to sin with your sin nature, you became a slave to sin. You cannot stop sinning without the power of Jesus Christ to break your chains. You are destined to sin. Oh, can you improve? Oh, yeah, you can improve your life, but you can never stop sinning when you are under the mastery of sin in your life. You have a predisposition to it. Our sin has caused us to, has caused us to fall short of God's glory, has condemned us. It's like we have a judgment against us because of our flaws against a holy God. Jesus said, he that believeth in him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And you say, well, pastor, how bad is, is it? Well, we could talk about society and realize what our sin has done to our society. Do you realize that in America, according to Kirby Anderson, is posted in, in a... In a survey done recently in America, the crime clock continues to click. Do you realize that there's one murder every, two, every 22 minutes in America? There's a rape every five minutes in America. There's a robbery every 49 seconds in America. There's a burglary every 10 seconds in America. We are afflicted with something serious through all humanity. And you say, well, pastor, there has to be a solution. What's God's solution? Well, he goes on to talk about the failed solution. Uh, many people believe in verse 19 through 20 that the law of God shows us all, the, that the law would help us overcome this, that morality, just being better, being a good person, following the Ten Commandments could solve the problem in our lives. And so many people, because they know they've sinned and they feel the guilt of sin, some of you since you were teenagers have felt like, I know there's bad in me, and I feel it, and I see it, and so I want to be better. And so you go to a self-improvement class, or you, uh, you try to do good to outweigh the bad, and you know that there's bad there, and so there's something inside of you saying, I need to be better. And you may go to church and you may say, I'm going to try to give more to the poor and I'm going to try to see my, my elderly father more often and I'm going to try to give a donation to the children in Africa and I'm going to try to stop swearing so much and, because I don't want my kids to pick it up and I'm going to drink less because I don't want to get drunk and I'm, I'm going to try to treat my wife a little bit better and not explode in my anger and all you're doing there is sin management. You're trying to improve on something that is already really bad. And you may feel like you're making progress, and yes, you are, but let me tell you, you have not dealt with the issue. The issue is still killing you. The issue is still big, and it's called the law. That's what the Jewish people that 
Paul was talking to felt like they were doing okay because they were improving themselves and doing good works. In verse 19, Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, and he's talking about the law of God, the moral code, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't have other idols in front of me, don't steal, don't covet. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What the law does is tells us how bad we are and where we break the law. It says in verse 20, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in the sight of God by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. What Paul is telling us is that none of us can be made right before God by trying to improve ourselves through good works. What, what the law tells us is how bad we are, but it doesn't help us become right before God. Are you tracking with me? Uh, let's just say that you decided that you were going to try to draw a straight line all across this stage. And I were to say, be a, draw it as straight as you can. And you were to take a chalk and you were to try to draw it as straight as you can. And you were very carefully drawing it and trying to be straight and, and, and really measuring it out and drawing it as straight as you could. And then you were to look back and you say, I think that's a pretty straight line. And you think it's a straight line. You've done as good as you could to draw it straight. But then someone were to take a big ruler or a measuring tape, and they were to take the measuring tape and put it alongside of your line. And you would say, oh yeah, well I thought it was straight, but now I see it is pretty crooked compared to a perfectly straight ruler. What the law does is the law shows us how much we fall short of perfection. The law, the moral code of God, shows us how far we fall short. It's there to teach us how bad we really are even when we're trying to be really good and how much we need a real solution to our problem. Are you tracking with me? Some of you are working really, really hard at drawing a straight line. You have tried for years to be very religious, to do good, to give to charity, to clean up your speech, to be faithful to your wife, to try to raise your kids the right way. And you think that somehow, you think that somehow, then when you come before God ultimately, I don't know if you can see this pretty clearly, some of us think that ultimately when you come before God, there's going to be some spiritual scale in the heavens. And you've done bad, and so your bad works are in one tray, and they weigh it out. But you say, if I try to be good enough, and I keep piling good works in here, good works in here, good works in here, good works, that maybe it's going to level it out. And some of you hope that when you get into heaven, that your good works are going to slightly outbalance your bad works and that God's going to put the scales and he's going to say, oh, all right, come on, you barely made it, but hey, you made it. <laughs> barely. You know how many people I've talked to that says, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm going to make it, but barely. Let me tell you, that's a flawed image of what's going to happen in the heavens, in the judgment scene of God. One sin, 
One sin, one, will tip the scales to no return. And no matter how much good you try to pile in, no matter how much good works you try to do, that one sin, and we have much more than one sin, that one sin will condemn us because there is none righteous before God. No, not one. There is none that does right. There is none that understands. Before a holy God, he demands and requires that all of our sin be washed away, that this plate be empty when we come before him. And that's exactly why the bad news is so bad. The bad news is so bad because it tells us that none of us are right before God. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, and it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Each one of us will stand before the judge and give account, the Bible says, for everything that's ever been done in our life. Not only what we've done, but what we thought and what we've said. Every thought that's gone through your mind, God knows. Every attitude of your heart, God knows. Those will all be put up on a scale. And I can guarantee you, look up at me, the bad news is this, that no one upon that scale will be good enough for the standard of God. That's why we need the only real solution, the good news. The good news is this, it starts in verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law, apart from good works, has been made known to us, to which the law and the prophets testify. Paul says the Bible has been talking about this solution for centuries, the solution to the sin problem. This righteousness, this right standard before God has been revealed apart from good works because the good works of the law is not going to get anybody right before God. No one will be justified before, by their good works. And that's why he says there's a righteousness that comes apart from the law. A righteousness from God that comes through what? Through faith in whom? In Jesus Christ to all who believe. You see, the righteousness that comes to our life, that being right before God, does not come through moral law or good works. We're all condemned. That's the bad news. The good news is that there is a solution that comes from God that is available to all humanity and mankind, and it's found only through the person of Jesus Christ and those who are willing to believe in what he has done. This is what he says. Listen. There is no difference, for all have sinned, and all fall short of God's glory. And all are justified freely. You see, this gift of being right before God, you cannot earn it or deserve it or work for it. You can't pray it into your life. You can't do enough good works to try to earn it before God. It's not merited. It's not deserved. It's not given. It's a gift that it comes freely to us. It says we are justified freely by his grace. Grace means the unmerited, undeserved favor of God through the redemption. The word redemption is a big theological word, but it basically means to buy back. Through the buying back, we were lost, we were sinful, Jesus paid a price to buy us back unto himself that came by Christ Jesus. Verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. That means someone that would placate your, the, the wrath of God, your sin before him. Through faith in his blood, 
He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so that as, so that as to be just the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Listen to me, I want you to hear me well because this is not a message that you can miss. This is not something that you can skip in religious school. This is not, if you have any message in your life that you need to know that affects your eternal destiny, you need to know this message clearly. All of your religious works and services and attending church are nothing, nothing, to justify before a holy, blameless God. There's only one way, only one solution. God, being perfect and just, conceived of a solution, the only solution to mankind's sin problem. And that was the perfect, unblemished God, who was all God, would become man. He was born of a virgin because he had to skip the seed, the semen of a man being impregnated into a woman because that's how the sin nature is passed down. And he came and conceived himself in the uterus of a young, probably 16, 17-year-old girl named Mary. This Jesus who was born nine months later was born without a sin nature because he was all God. He lived for 33 to 36 years on earth sinless. No man or woman or child had ever done that before. He lived sinless. And he had one mission and one purpose. I will present this message and I will die upon a cross to pay a price that my humanity cannot pay for themselves. And when Jesus died on that cross, he was not just a martyr. He was not just a marginalized Galilean peasant that was a, a revolutionary good example like Martin Luther King or Gandhi may have been. He was the son of God paying a price that no one on the face of humanity, not the angels, not the saints of old, not Paul, not Peter could ever pay. And when he died upon that cross, he paid the sins of all humanity with his blood shed upon that cross. And now that gift of forgiveness of cleansing that you and I could not pay on these scales of justice and righteousness, he is offered to all humanity. And that's exactly what he says. And listen, I close with this. Lastly, it's the faith principle. Verse 27, he says, where then is boasting? There is no boasting when you come to God through Jesus Christ. No one can say, look what I did. Your doing condemns you. All you can say is look at the gift that I received. Not look what I did because you can do nothing. You see, your change in life comes not because you're being good and you've earned salvation. Your change comes because you repented and believed and received a gift that makes you clean. And now you live different, righteous Life before God, not because you earned it, but because you were given a gift, the gift of forgiveness and salvation through Jesus Christ. I close with this. Listen, 
on what boasting is excluded, on what principle, on that of observing the law, no, but that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? No, not at all. Rather, we uphold it. Paul was saying, listen, the righteousness of God is not nullified when you believe. When you repent, believe and are baptized. That's what it tells us. In Acts chapter 2, the law of God is not erased. You actually start living the law of God because your heart has changed, and now your life starts to change. Listen, Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but shall pass from death into life. Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 